Hey guys, Eric Lindine here. I'm the lead pastor of Mosaic Church in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you, and that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Uh, well, again, thank you so much. Uh, we just appreciate just all the love and affection, and Josh and Matt and the covering team, and just thank you so much. Uh, why don't you stand for the reading of God's Word? We love books of the Bible here at Mosaic. Last week, we ended a year-long study in the book of Genesis. Now we're going through the book of Galatians. And one of the things is we won't be covering every single verse of every single chapter on Sunday morning. But we'll be covering some of the important verses, and then we're encouraging community groups or in your Bible studies to maybe dive into some of those other verses or on your own time uh, to do some of that study. So that kind of there's a whole church we're studying this together. Uh, this mo- evening will be in the first 10 verses. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For now I am seeking the approval of men or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Uh, Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I thank you for your church and the gift of fellowship and worship and um, just your many blessings in our lives. I pray right now, God, that people would receive from you the word they need to receive. God, they'd be able to release anxiety, fear, worry, anything that they're clinging to, God, that you don't want them to hold on to. God, thank you for just the miracles in our congregation of uh, of new babies um, growing of, of life change, of, of marriages being renewed and restored, of friendships growing, just all that you're doing. God, we just pray that always give glory to you. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, for the next six weeks, we're going to spend uh, going through this great book of the Bible, the book of Galatians. And I'm excited. I've never preached through the book of Galatians. It's one of the books of the Bible we haven't covered here yet. So I've been, uh, it's been really nice to dive into this book. It has 149 verses. And really, on your own time, you can read about 20 minutes. What I'd love to encourage you is maybe once a week, just read through the whole book of Galatians. Take about 20 minutes, you know, once a week or so. But, and especially as we got, kind of travel chapter by chapter, try to read that chapter once a, once a week, maybe even daily, the chapter that we are on, and then come ready to discuss it in your community groups. Uh, but our goal, we really want to help you read this book, to study this book, to enjoy this book, examine it, because really it's one of the most significant books in the history of the world. 
our church, if you don't know this, is something called Protestantism. Uh, that's, that's a break off of Catholicism. And it was a correction of some things that were just kind of added to the simplicity of the person and work of Jesus. And uh, about 500 years ago, they wanted to get back to the pure teaching of God's word. And at the forefront of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, 1600s, there's really two big books. You had Romans and Galatians. So this is one of those two really big books that were important to the Protestant Reformation. And both were written by the Apostle Paul. Romans is about what the gospel is, and Galatians is more what the gospel isn't. And by gospel, we mean the good news that through the work of Jesus on the cross, our sins can be forgiven, our relationship with God can be reconciled, and we can receive eternal life that starts now and can continue on forever. So if you think of terms of football, kind of have your offense and your defense. Romans is kind of the offensive side of the ball, and Galatians is more like the defense. You need both. Romans is pushing the gospel forward, and Galatians is defending against counterfeits, against false gospels, against those that are seeking to undermine and undo what God is doing in Christ. Galatians is such an important book that Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer who founded the Lutheran church, he said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed it to myself. It is my wife. You know your Bible, Bible nerd when you want to marry a book of the Bible, right? That's how Martin Luther felt about Galatians. Others have called it, quote, the battle cry of the Reformation and the Christian declaration of independence. And really kind of the big idea for the book of Galatians that I really want you to hone in on is that through Christ, God sets us free. We are set free through Christ. So we're going to be talking about what does God set us free from, from sin, from religion? What does he set us free to do, to live by the Spirit, to love and serve others, to be adopted into God's family? See, the issue, though, is that Satan tries to get us to live in bondage to a false, counterfeit gospel. Oftentimes, if the enemy has lost us to Christ and his work, then what he's wanted to do, though, is to live in this counterfeit gospel, something that's not believing the truth of the finished work of Christ. See, God creates and Satan counterfeits. Everything God makes is good, and then Satan tries to corrupt it, to counterfeit it, to co-opt it, to do evil. See, the devil, Satan, our enemy, he doesn't create anything. All he does, though, is seek to counterfeit what God has made. And everything that's valuable eventually has some kind of counterfeits to it. Uh, we love watching the TV show uh, White Collar. Anyone else watch that show? Right? There's a lot of counterfeiters in there. Like They'll take a very valuable painting and then make a counterfeit of it. Why? Because the initial thing is worth a lot, and so they want to make a different piece and kind of counterfeiting that and make some money. This goes from everything from athletic autographs, counterfeit signatures on baseball cards, to knockoff vintage retro Jordans, to fake Gucci handbags, Right? Anything that has value, people will try to counterfeit that thing. Why? Because if something is valuable and you can counterfeit it, it's a benefit to you and a detriment to others. So Satan is the great counterfeiter. God is the creator. And the most valuable, most precious thing you have is your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
And because of its preeminent value, it's not shocking that Satan tries to counterfeit that and get us to believe in some kind of false gospel. See, there is God-given redemption and there's man-made religion. There are shepherds who love God's flock and do good. And sadly, there are wolves who seek to devour and destroy. There's the church of Jesus Christ and there is false spirituality. There's the kingdom of God and the fallen world. There's God's grace and man's works. There are angels and demons and love and hate. And ultimately, everything culminates in eternal life with Christ, with God forever, or eternal death and separation from all that is good, all that is true, all that is holy. And this is what we're really going to see in the book of Galatians. I heard one time someone who, you know, was working in, in, in taking out counterfeit $20 bills or just in that industry. And, and what they did, though, was instead of looking at all the things that they could counterfeit and studying different counterfeits, they spent all their time just focusing and studying what the real currency looks like. And they knew it so well inside and out that instantly when they, they saw a fake $20 bill, they could identify it instantly. That's what my hope for you is, too is that you don't spend all your time worrying about false gospels and counterfeit things, but we fall in love with the gospel, with who Jesus is, and the finished work of Christ so much that when you then see a false gospel, instantly you're like, no, no, no. I know who Jesus is. I know what his word says. I know what the real gospel is. So that's our hope in this series. Um, To kind of just set up uh, our whole series and tonight's message, we're going to watch a video in just about a, uh, a little bit here. Uh, and, and then also just one quick note, um, tonight's uh, s- s- sermon, as well as the series, is a little different than normal. Uh, my preferred method, I like teaching through books of the Bible that have more of a narrative arc, Genesis, Ruth, um, the gospel, you know, the book of Acts, that kind of things. But it's good for us also as a church to be well-rounded and dive into something, Paul's a little more philosophical. So in this series, it might just feel a little bit different as we talk about more uh, lofty uh, concepts in some ways. I'm going to hopefully uh, bring it down. The, it's understandable. Um, but just again, when we're dealing with Paul, uh, you know, he, he is very weighty and complex. So it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, and so we'll do our best to kind of pick up these themes. But um, there's this group called Spoken Gospel, and they do a really good job. We played this for the book of Ruth, I think. Uh, we played the video. And so it's a little bit longer. It's about eight, eight and a half minutes. But go ahead and check this out, and it's going to kind of set up Galatians, and then we're going to go through uh, the first 10 verses. So go ahead and, and play that video. Yeah, good stuff. So keep that in mind kind of as you're reading through the book of Galatians. Uh, so let's start with Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Do you have that slide you can throw up there, Owen? Making sure you're tracking with me. There we go. Awesome. Um, First of all, Paul, that's our writer. He wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. And right at the beginning, he's going to highlight um, the fact that he's been commissioned to preach the gospel with authority and to plant churches by using this word apostle here. Again, now this is a word we don't use a lot uh, in the 21st century. But uh, let's go back a little bit. In ancient kind of Greek language, the word apostle was used for a naval expedition 
So someone who is commissioned to represent Greek interests in foreign nations. So it would be like a little task force in the Greek uh, uh, navy there who'd go out to represent Greece uh, in their interests in foreign nations. And then in Greek-speaking Judaism around the time of Christ, it was used kind of this word of apostle for an authorized representative. So I mean, you can really think of an ambassador as, as really like an apostle. But then with the coming of Christ, the word is applied to those commissioned by Christ as bearers of the gospel. So the apostles were the bearers of the gospel. They were those early teachers, the church planters, commissioned by Jesus himself to go out and plant the gospel. I believe in our context nowadays, it's those uh, people who are commissioned to start new gospel works around the world. I think missionaries function in that um, uh, apostleship. I think church planters, um, those uh, multi-site campus churches who are sending out new kind of works of the gospel. That's that gift of apostleship. And apostleship has this idea, though, of authority, Paul is saying, hey, I'm an apostle. I've been commissioned by God, and I have some authority. Can you put that? Are you tracking with me there, Owen? Awesome. So number one, if you're taking notes, uh, we're, we're going to write this down, that uh, authority. This is our first kind of A we're going to go through. So what is biblical authority, and how does that look uh, in our churches? First, I want to make the case that the Bible does speak about authority on this topic, and it says quite a bit. When Jesus ascended back to the Father, after he had died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again, he breathed on his followers, he said, wait to receive the Holy Spirit, then he ascended back up into heaven, and he left the church to be his embassy, his ambassadors, to represent uh, him who is now in heaven here on earth. And Jesus, King Jesus, haven't left his embassy, the church, without instructions on how to operate and organize itself. In fact, what we'd see throughout the New Testament is the form of government, really, that Jesus says to organize the church might best be called elder-led congregationalism. All right, there's a lot of different forms of church government, and in our Baptistic tradition, we believe in the independence of local churches. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with uh, our brothers and sisters who are in part of denominations that have more of a hierarchical approach to kind of their functioning. Um, We don't see that, though, in in the New Testament. We see independent autonomous churches that really have uh, groups of believers that come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and then out of that body, they lift up elders. That's what Paul would do when he plant churches. he, He would raise up elders, leaders in the church, and really, in the New Testament, the same word for elders is the word they use for uh, pastor, actually. And so it's p- leaders in the church, like pastors, in our context, governing team members, uh, who, who are leading the church. It's, it's this where the assembled church as a whole holds and exercises the authority of the keys of the kingdom. Jesus says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, but is led and taught in that use of their authority by its elders. Put simply, King Jesus has given the local church two things, the keys of the kingdom and elders to lead and teach how to use them. What we see in the New Testament, there are some requirements. What does it mean to be an elder? What does it mean to be a leader in the church? Two primary passages, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 6 through 9. Here's what it says. For those who aspire to be leaders in the church, to be elders, number one, to be above reproach, to be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, not a drunk, 
self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to have people into your house, able to teach, whether that's up front on stage or even in a small group or a Bible study, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, able to manage their own household and their children, not a recent convert, well thought of by outsiders, lover of good, upright, and holy. This isn't our requirements, although it is, uh, but this is what the Bible says, that elders, leaders, pastors in the church, these are the requirements. And in the New Testament, where you see a church, you have elders. And these elders have a specific role to lead the church in its exercise of the authority that Jesus has given them. Notice, the elders don't hold the keys to the kingdom. The church does, but elders lead the church as it uses them. And this isn't just an advisory role either. There's some real authority in leadership. That's why you have places in the Bible like Hebrews 13, 17. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Or Acts 20, 28, where Paul calls them overseers. Or 1 Peter 5, where Peter says to be subject to your elders. Now again, in our Western concept, this idea of authority, of, of being subject to, obeying your leaders, submitting, we get kind of bent out of shape about that because it's like we're very much like, no, I want to do what I want to do but because people have misused authority. But what we see is that authority is good. It's something that is good and life-giving when it's used well. And this is true of authority that elders use in the church. Here's the truth. When God wins in the end, when we go to heaven, heaven comes to earth and there's a new heaven and a new earth, there's still going to be authority. King Jesus will still be our authority. There will be authority in heaven. See, we are all under some kind of authority uh, in our lives. And so we shouldn't buck against this idea of, but Paul's like, hey, I have some authority. I help plant your church. I'm speaking into it. I'm one of your leaders, your elders. There's accountability but we see early on in this, there is authority. Number two, Paul's going to now speak about the atonement. Number two, the atonement. Galatians 1, 3 through 4, go ahead and put that up there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father. The atonement is this idea that God died for us in our place. Some of you, you've been raised in the church, and you're like, yeah, amen, I've heard this my whole life. But the truth is, this particular doctrine, the last 20 years, has come under a lot of attack. I have pastor friends who deny what's called substitutionary atonement. They think it means uh, divine child abuse, that God would inflict punishment on his son. Hold on to that idea, we're going to come back to that. But first, he's saying grace and peace to you. These are words Paul uses again and again and again in almost every single one of his letters. What does that mean? Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's things that we don't deserve. Peace isn't just the absence of conflict, but it echoes the Old Testament concept of shalom, where a person's life with God and with others and with creation, so with God, with others, with creation, it's ordered harmony, both physically and spiritually, and all is well. This is life in the Garden of Eden, life that it's going to be when King Jesus comes back, heaven comes to earth, there's a new earth, and, and we live in shalom. That's what we're looking forward to. But also we can receive peace here and now. And how do we receive grace? How do we receive this peace? 
through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. This is what is called the atonement. The most fundamental event in the atonement is that Jesus Christ took the full punishment that we deserved for our sins as a substitute in our place. And all the other benefits or results of the atonement find their anchor in this truth, that Jesus Christ died for us. See, the truth is all people are in need of a substitute since we are all guilty of sinning against a holy God. All sin deserves punishment because sin is personal rebellion against God himself. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifices took on the guilt of God's people, but they could never fully atone for the sins of man. For that, Jesus Christ came and died in the place of his people as a substitute, taking upon himself the full punishment that they deserved. Tim Keller is one of my favorite Christian thinkers and pastors, and uh, he passed away recently after fighting cancer and just finishing his race well. But he says this about the gospel and substitutionary atonement. He says, it is crucial to remember that the Christian faith has always understood that Jesus Christ is God. God did not then inflict pain on someone else, but rather on the cross, absorbed the pain, violence, and evil of the world into himself. Therefore, the God of the Bible is not like the primitive deities who demanded our blood for their wrath to be appeased. Rather, this is the God who becomes human and offers his own lifeblood in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that someday he can destroy all evil without destroying us. A good God who can't be around sin has a problem when we are sinful, but he loves us. So what does he do? He becomes human himself, and he takes all the sin and guilt and shame that we should have taken upon himself because of his goodness. He can't just wink at sin and pretend like it never happened. He would not be a just God. But instead, he takes the punishment upon himself. It's not divine child abuse of a father inflicted upon the son. God is one. He takes our sins upon himself. Soren Kierkegaard in 1849 wrote that sin is despair not wanting to be oneself before God. Here's what I want you to understand about sin. Sin is both something that we do when we don't do the good things we should do, when we do the bad things we know we shouldn't, but sin is also a condition we find ourselves under. Sin is when we realize we cannot stand before a holy God in our own identities. We realize our brokenness. What does that mean? Everyone gets their identity from somewhere or something. And Kierkegaard asserts that human beings were made not only to believe in God in some general way, but to love him supremely, to center their lives on him above everything else, and build their very identities on him. Anything else is sin. It's missing the mark. Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. I I love that definition much more than just sin is doing a bad thing. It's the refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get your own identity apart from him. Sin is both something we do and a condition we are under. And Jesus Christ's death on the cross paid the price for our sins, those wrong things we do, the good things we don't do, but also delivered or rescued us from the condition that we were under. Now, rescue doesn't mean deliverance uh, from, but from the power of. All right, deliverance conceived here is not just deliverance out of the present evil age, 
although that will happen eventually, we're still in this present evil age, but it's deliverance from the power of evil and the values of the present world system through the power of the risen Christ within the Christian. Jesus doesn't save us and then instantly go up to heaven. It's like we're still in this broken, fallen world. So what does that mean that he's rescued us out of it? He's rescued us from the influence of the evil one. And then now we can have power to resist it. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, although we're still in this fallen world. Someday, when Christ comes and all darkness, sin, and evil is locked away forever and destroyed. But we're waiting for that. And so Paul's saying, man, this idea of the atonement, why are you walking away from this? This is the core truth. So our third A is astonishment. In six, verse one, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Again, what was happening was people were coming in and saying, no, 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 you have to uh, live according to all these, these customs and, 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 and laws of, the, of Judaism. But to choose the law, the Galatians, what they're doing is they're falling from grace. To live by works is to lose the peace that God had purchased for us for believers through Christ's atonement. He's saying you're leaving God's grace. You're leaving God's peace. I'm astonished that you're walking away from that and walking in legalism. And he even goes to say embracing legalism means rejecting God. Because it means substituting for God in one's life with all this other stuff. John Stott, a great pastor and commentator, says this. He says, to tamper with the gospel, the truth that Jesus Christ died in our place, is to trouble the church. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppress, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. Conversely, the only way to be a good church man or church woman is to be a good gospel man or gospel woman. The best way to serve the church is to believe and to preach the gospel. He's saying, hey, it's not so much that we have to worry about people outside. It's people inside who are saying, who are trying to add to this message that you are free in Christ. Here's what Paul says. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. The ESV and most translations say this a lot kinder. Uh, what he's literally saying is let him be damned. That's what Paul is saying. Let him be damned who takes the gospel and adds to it these other things that we shouldn't be adding to it. Now you might ask, how, what does it look like? Well, I, I don't often call out things, but there is a growing movement, something called the Hebrew Roots Movement. I'm not gonna raise your hand if you've heard about this. This is a growing movement among Christians and particularly on social media and a lot of reels. What is, it, what is this? The Hebrew Roots Movement is a religious movement that advocates adherence to the Torah and believes in Jesus, whom they refer to by the Hebrew name Yeshua as the Messiah. The movement emphasizes and promotes the belief that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, was never abolished by Jesus, but was instead meant to be permanent. Broadly speaking, followers of the Hebrew Roots Movement believe that all believers in Christ are obligated to follow Jewish laws and practices from the book of Moses. In some groups, extra-biblical rabbinic teachings and traditions are elevated, if not in official doctrinal practices, then uh, beliefs, then in practice, to the same level as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
All right, here's what I see. I have some friends who are posting about this stuff. They're saying, Christians, you're doing it wrong. Don't gather in church like this and what we've been doing. Instead, we need to observe these different festivals. Don't celebrate Christmas that has pagan origins. Instead, celebrate Hanukkah, which is not in the Bible. Let's just call that out. Or you have to do these different feasts or, or do this or that. But oftentimes they're cherry picking different parts of the 613 Old Testament laws and choosing these things. Why is that attractive? At the heart of all of us is deep pride. And if I know a secret that other people don't, and if I keep these special Jewish customs and I refer to God only as Yah instead of the Father or whatever, and by doing these things, I'm earning my own salvation. It's taking the focus off of Christ and the finished work of the cross into the things that we can do. And I feel good about this, about myself. And, and, and it's just all about me, me, me. And church, this is dangerous. This also happens in any other way where we, we try to just add to the message of the gospel. Whether we say a Christian must homeschool or a Christian must send their kids to Christian school or a Christian must send their kids to public school. Anytime you're adding to something that, no, you have to do it this way. You know, a Christian has to gather on Sunday mornings, not Sunday nights, or, you know, whatever it might be. As humans, we, we tend to want to add things in because it makes us a little unsettled that we do nothing to earn our salvation, that we have no part of it. But God, in his infinite mercy, sees us, that we are helpless. He comes to earth. He lives a perfect, sinless life. He dies on the cross for us and says, it's just yours. Believe it. Receive it. Let go of the guilt and the shame. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message of the truth, the grace, and the peace that we find through Christ. But so often, again, we want to add to these other things or, or we, we want to seek some kind of mystery or, you know, whatever it might be. Church, I, I urge you, resist that urge. Read the gospel. Focus on the gospel. Love Christ. Love his church. That's what we want for you. So a couple next steps as we, as we wrap up here. Number one, examine your heart in regards to authority. As I was talking about authority and, and, and Paul is an apostle, and we talk about eldership in the church and just how, what goes on? Do you bristle a little bit about that? I want to encourage you to explore that. Do your own search. What does the Bible say about authority? What does authority look like in our households, in our churches? Just how do we act under authority to others? And just explore some of that. Because the truth is, again, we're all under some kind of authority under God. Number two, reflect on the atonement and receive God's peace and his grace. Just, just dwell on that this week. The goodness that Christ died on the cross for us in our place. And, and you don't have to do anything but receive it in faith. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then examine yourself. Have you let any kind of religion creep in? Are you trying to somehow earn your salvation or your sanctification? I think a lot of times we can even receive our salvation. Okay, you have God saves me, but now, 
the work of becoming like Christ, that's all on me. But the truth is, we're going to see this, as we live empowered by the Spirit, it's a partnership. We allow the Holy Spirit to do the deep work that only he can do to change us, to mold us. Now, there are things we can do to allow ourselves to be more open to the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's just talk about worship real quick. As we gather in worship, why do we start with singing? Like, it's a bizarre concept, right? In what other places do you sing with a group of other people, adults? Like, maybe at a football match or or soccer, not too many. Maybe if you're in theater, you sing a lot. I don't know. Why do we do this? Well, it's to encounter God. Ours is a singing faith. This is what we've done for thousands and thousands of years. The band, our hope is to give you an opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through song, through words. Your part, though, is are you going to let the Holy Spirit speak to you? Now, again, we are body, mind, and soul, and I believe those all, all things work together. If you struggle sometimes just to feel God or connect with him, just try this. Get your body more involved. <laughs> like, get on your knees. Submit to the authority of God in your life. Raise your hands like you're at a football game or your daughter's volleyball match or soccer game, whatever that might be, right? Even if you don't feel like it, when we get our bodies involved, it's more easy for the Holy Spirit to come in and change us. When you're listening to a sermon, take notes. You're giving the Holy Spirit that much more freedom to do a work. Show up to your community groups. Look at the questions I email out every Monday and come ready to discuss them. You know, you're going to give the Holy Spirit more opportunities to do the work that only he can do. But there are things in our lives that we can do to allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that he can do. And then the final thing I just encourage you, just read and marinate on Galatians 1 this week. These next six weeks, let's just spend some time in the book of Galatians and just, I'd love to see what insights come out, you know, even you and just different things as you come and discuss it in, in your community group and just say, wow, I never thought of it this way. I want to encourage you, like, read it in different translations. Maybe this week, you know, on Monday, tomorrow, you're going to, you know, read it in whatever translation you normally read, NIV, ESV. Tuesday, read it in the message. Wednesday, read chapter one in the New Living Translation. You know, you can just get different perspective as different translators translate things in different ways. Um, you know, th- there's online commentaries, lots of different things, Right? We want to know the gospel. We want to love the gospel. We want to dive in and learn this together. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and we're going to go out of here singing one more song. And again, I want to encourage you, position your body, mind, and soul in a way that allows the Holy Spirit to come in and do a work as we just sing this last closing song together. Uh, let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you for the gospel and the finished work of Christ on the cross and how he rose again, paying the price for our sins, and, and you took that upon yourself And God, I pray right now that we would not add anything to the gospel message, but God, that we'd simply receive and follow you and just breathe deeply your your grace and your peace. God, I I thank you again for for your many, many gifts and how you're working in us and through us. And I pray right now that we just allow the Holy Spirit greater access into our lives as we learn to walk in step with the Spirit, following the Spirit, just being changed by your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Maple Grove podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thank you to everyone who gives to Mosaic Maple Grove. Your generosity allows this message to go out into the world. You can be a part of the Mosaic Tribe by going to mymosaicchurch.com. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. Grace and peace, my friends.